our series in the book of Romans at the beginning of the year. This was when, uh, actually the first Sunday of February or so, this was when the Lakers had a losing record and Anthony Davis was not a Laker. Um, a lot has changed uh, since then. I said when we began the book of Romans that it is probably the most theologically profound book in the Bible. It is not only profound, but it is essential, it is deep, and it is dense. And I thank you, Living Hope, by the way, I want to thank you for allowing us pastors to teach expositorily, uh, meaning we take a book of the Bible and, you know, like, do it uh, section by section. Not a lot of churches do that. And oftentimes it is easier to uh, preach uh, uh, topical sermons that people want to hear more about, interesting. And there are times we do that, but thank you for allowing us to preach books of the Bible. But after having preached 15 chapters, almost a whole year through the book of Romans, um, and it's great theology, it gives uh, glory to God. In fact, the very last uh, few verses of chapter 16 is a doxology, and we're going to uh, pray that doxology at the end of the service. It talks about the mission of the church. But when we get to Romans chapter 16, for 24 verses, Paul uh, takes the great theology, the great mission that he had been talking about, and he stops, and instead of talking about transcendent, timeless principles and truths, he spends 24 verses in chapter 16 to talk about people. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, but theology is important, but theology is only important as it relates to people. Now, the mission is important, but the mission purports to change people's lives. The church is important, but the church is comprised of people. Glory to God is important, but it's people who give glory to God. But listen carefully. The business of the church is not right theology. It's not mission. It's not church. All those things are important, and I don't want to be misunderstood, but the business of the church is people. So this great theologian, church planter, missionary, a writer of scripture, spends a whole chapter talking about individual members of the church, and he names a lot of them. And so if you would, would you turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16? It will be in verses 1 through 24 uh, this morning, and at the end of the service, we'll pray out, pray out uh, verses 25 through 27 in doxology. Paul is in Corinth, which is in Greece, and he's writing a letter to the church in Rome, which is in Italy. And what he does is something interesting. As he talks about people, uh, what he says of a large category of people that he names is that we ought to embrace them, whether they're people in Corinth or in Rome. Okay, now, um, he also does something interesting. He not only talks about the people we should embrace in the church, but he talks about a category of people that we should avoid in the church. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, first, I want to talk about the people whom we should embrace, or, or I'm going to call them heroes in the faith, in verses uh, 1 through 24. 
In verses 1 through 24, there are 33 na uh, names mentioned. Nine of these people were with Paul, uh, eight men and one woman. 24 names mentioned in Rome, 17 men and seven women. There are families as well as unnamed individuals. We're not going to go through all of them. But let me give you examples, certain examples of what, what I would call heroes in the faith. Three examples. The first is Phoebe. Phoebe, and uh, you know, if she had a superpower, it would be Phoebe the deacon. Phoebe the deacon. Verse 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at um, uh, Tenere, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Paul calls her a sister, an affectionate term. She is also called a servant of the church. And the term servant uh, in Greek is a diakonos which is the word we get deacon from. So uh, Phoebe either functionally or officially served as a deacon in the church. And, and the word deacon literally in, in the Greek word just means servant, someone who served the church. And not only that, she um, was of help to uh, Paul as a patron. Pa patron means that well, she had some financial means, and she, so she helped and supported Paul as well as other people. Um, and what we understand is that she was traveling from Corinth to Rome, so from Greece to Italy, on a business trip, and she was given the responsibility of hand-carrying the letter that Paul wrote for the Romans to deliver to the Roman church. So here was Phoebe. Seemingly a successful businesswoman. We're not sure if she was married or single, but she was a, a busy person. And she leveraged uh, the status of life that was given to her, whether it be financially or the ability to travel. And she leveraged that for the Lord. She was a servant. And that's what we know her as. By the way, the reason why uh, we argue that uh, there were female deacons in the New Testament was because of people like Phoebe. Let me ask you this question. Do you know Phoebes? Do you know Phoebe in your life? Meaning, uh, they're busy, uh, they're professional, uh, they work hard, but instead of using that as a reason why they ought not to be serving other people or the church, they leverage that and say, what can I do with my profession if I have to travel a lot? What can I do with that in order to help others or serve the church? And Phoebe was such an individual. The second superhero that I want to highlight is a couple, not necessarily an individual. And I think that this particular couple is probably the most well-known ministry couple in the New Testament, ministry couple. So they were known not for necessarily having a great marriage or one individual uh, just standing out, but as a husband and wife really standing out in, in doing ministry. And this was Prisca and Aquila. Prisca, another uh, word is Priscilla and Aquila. That's how we know them. And I, I, I think that their superpowers, Phoebe's superpower was being a deacon, Priscilla and Aquila were known for being 
shepherds. Let me uh, give you a little bit of background on Priscilla and Aquila. We first meet them in Acts chapter 18. Now, they had, uh, their home was originally Rome, but they fled to Corinth because uh, there was a persecution against the Jews by uh, the emperor Claudius in 52 AD. And when they get to Corinth, it says that they worked as tent makers. Now, I want to pause here for a bit because um, I know a lot of us in this room have been in the church a long time, and one of the lingo or the language or the word that the church oftentimes uses is the term tent maker. And it kind of became known as uh, something that Christians do when they want to do, uh, like go on missions or something, or as a missionary, and uh, in order to financially support themselves or, or obtain a visa, they have a profession or a job, and um, in, in order to support themselves, and then they do ministry on the side. So when we hear tent making, we kind of think status, as opposed to uh, the actual work that sometimes someone does. And for Priscilla and Aquila, tent making wasn't a high professional job. It was a blue-collared, menial job that, that, that you would get your hands dirty and greasy and, 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 and grimy. It wasn't necessarily a high-status job, per se. If there was a, a modern-day equivalent to tent-making, where a person can travel from Rome to Corinth to later Ephesus, and in order to support themselves, just pick up a, 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 a profession just to work to support themselves as well as others, I think in, in our gig economy, that profession might be driving Uber. So think of Priscilla and Aquila as Uber drivers. They would do it not because there was high upward mobility, but simply because that's what allowed them to pay the bills, not only to support themselves, but others. Okay? This was Priscilla and Aquila. So they were in a Corinth for a while. They met another Uber driver, which was Paul. Because Paul, when he was doing mission work, he would go to places, and when uh, there was no church or people supporting him, he also drove Uber. And they met in their profession. They got to know each other, and for whatever reason, um, they, like Paul, invited him to live with them. When Paul, at some point in time, decided, you know, uh, I'm going to do missional work, I'm going to do church planting in Ephesus, uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, upped their family and moved to Ephesus with him. And guess what they did in Ephesus? They were Uber drivers, again. In Ephesus, they met a, a, a communicator, a preacher by the name of Apollos, a great gifted person, but he was only versed in the baptism of John, but not baptism of Jesus Christ. So they invited Apollos over for dinner. At least that's what I think happened. Apollos, you know, you're great. Can you come over for dinner? And as um, they were having dinner with Apollos, they said, you know what, you only know the baptism of John. You need to know about Jesus Christ. And Apollos then became a follower of Jesus. I want you to get an, a picture of this particular couple. I'm not sure if they had children or not. I'm kind of guessing that they did. But they fled Rome, went to uh, Corinth, and, uh, and then later on to Ephesus, um, and now they're back in Rome, but all throughout the time, 
they did whatever was necessary to support themselves and others in their sphere of influence. Um, they taught people, they ministered out of their home. Now listen to what Paul says about them in verses 3 through 5. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. And this is what happened in Ephesus. There was a great persecution against the church. And Priscilla and Aquila were inviting people into their homes. And so they became targets. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They had opened their homes and their lives so much that uh, they were known throughout uh, the area. And they were grateful for them, the Uber driver. Greet also the church in their house. So they went back to Rome and they did what they were doing before. They opened up their home again. See, back then, whether it be Corinth or Rome in, or in Ephesus, they didn't have church buildings like this. And so they met wherever they could. And oftentimes it was at the home of members within that church. Do you know, let me ask you this question, do you know of Priscilla and Aquila? Do you know people who may not be extraordinarily wealthy, who may not be in vocational ministry, but, but they're willing to open up their homes for a young missionary church planner to live with them, for strangers to come into their home and say, let's worship here. It's not because they had a lot of money, a lot of time. You know what I envision? I envision Priscilla to be a mom as well as a wife. And while the church was gathering in their living room or their common room, and they're trying to have Bible study, the toddler is running around making noise, and they can't concentrate. There are times when, when he was uh, driving his Uber, she's home watching the kids, and there are times she's driving her Uber, and he's watching the kids. And, and they're doing it for the gospel's sake. Let me ask you this question. Do you know a Priscilla and Aquila in your life? Do you know people who um, simply open up their home and when they meet someone with, um, in their community, um, a friend of, of theirs or a, a parent of a, a little league um, child or of, of, of families that they meet and dance or a PTA, they ask, hey, let's have dinner together. And so they come, come over to their house to have dinner, and um, next time, say, hey, do you want to meet again for dinner? Uh, by the way, we want you to meet this other friend. And so they're connecting these people, and, and they keep introducing them to other friends, and next thing they know, uh, they say, oh, by the way, all of our friends are gathering together this Friday night. We call it cell group. You may not know this, but you've become friends with all of us now. So this uh, family who don't go to church and say, well, sure, we'd love to come because we love all those people. You guys have been great. Do you know people like that? A Priscilla and Aquila. They just simply uh, sacrifice for themselves, uh, you know, use uh, the things that God has given to them uh, to be of service to others. By the way, I, I, I want to mention this. Priscilla and Aquila, their names come up six times in the New Testament. Okay? Six times in the New Testament. Twice 
The husband's name is mentioned first, Aquila and Priscilla. Four other times, it's the wife's name, Priscilla, who's mentioned for, first. Now, I don't think that's an accident. In fact, a lot of commentators believe uh, the reason why Priscilla's name is mentioned first is because she was uh, the more spiritual, more active. She was, uh, the, uh, she was the initiator of the two, perhaps more vocal. In fact, when they uh, brought Apollos to their home in order to teach them, uh, that order, the wife's name is first. You know, we're under the impression that uh, oftentimes, uh, especially in a Near Eastern or in the ancient times, the wife should keep silent or quiet and the, the man should always take leadership. I have a feeling that if we would have met Priscilla and Aquila, we would be scratching our heads a little bit and saying, hey, how come she's doing a lot of the talking? How come she's the one inviting all of these people to her home? How come she's uh, being proactive within the church more than her husband? And some people may think, well, you know, I, I think she's a little too aggressive as a woman. Paul says, way to go, Priscilla. Do you know Priscilla and Aquila? Let me give you a third hero, a third superhero, and it is Timothy, and I call his superpower the single adult. Timothy, the single adult. Verse 21, Paul writes uh, from Corinth, um, my Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, let me give you background information on Timothy. We find uh, uh, Timothy in Acts chapter 16. So after Paul and Barnabas, the missionary team, they split, Paul meets Timothy, and Timothy then becomes Paul's traveling companion. Now, uh, Timothy was uh, born of a Jewish mother and a, a Greek father. Her primary influences were her, his mother and grandmother. He was a single adult. And the thing about his temperament is this, that he is probably a little bit timid or on the quiet side. If, you, if we meet Timothy, we wouldn't think of him as a type A, charismatic leader type. In fact, we might have thought that he was kind of a mama's boy. And in fact, when Paul sends Timothy to the church at Corinth to help pastor that particular church, uh, he writes to the church saying, hey, be nice to him, don't intimidate him. He's not the kind of person that we would pick out and say, wow, you ought to go into ministry, but for some reason, Paul encourages this young man to do ministry, to become a pastor. Of all the people that Paul worked with, did ministry with, he was probably the one that was most dear to him, a protege and a friend. In fact, when Paul writes to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he either says, I'm sending Timothy or say hello to Timothy, or Timothy says hi because he's with me. The last letter that Paul writes from his jail cell, he doesn't think he'll survive, is to Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and says, come, I want to see you before I die. What made Timothy so special. Oftentimes we look at people for their outward giftedness, their charismatic personality. What made Timothy so extraordinary 
in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, this is, I, I think, one of the most extraordinary descriptions of a person. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Uh, Paul makes this general statement that people generally seek after their own interests, even those who do ministry, even those who are in the church. It's a self-serving kind of a thing. But Timothy was different. He was unique, and he, was, he will be genuinely be concerned about what's going on in your life. Have you ever met a Timothy, or do you know a Timothy in your life? That, that they seem to genuinely be concerned about how you're doing when, they, when they're not getting anything back in return. I, not too long ago, I had lunch with a friend, and he was going through some major questions in his life. So, you know, I thought we were going to get together, and I'll be like the older guru type of person, saying, hey, you can ask me questions, and I will give you wisdom type of thing. And we were having dinner, and, and some of that happened, but he began to ask me how I was doing. And, and you know, I shared some of my heart, well, some, some of the things that were... Um, uh, that I was concerned about. And you know, it's interesting, when I meet, this, we meet with this particular a brother of mine, a friend of mine, I don't necessarily feel like I have to compete with, I have to impress, or I have to like look good. I feel like he just genuinely cares. I'm just about who I am as a person. And I would joke with him, man, you should, your name should be Barnabas because you're a son of encouragement. Because every time I'm around you, you encourage me. Do you have a Timothy in your life? They're heroes. Let me ask you a question. And I'll just, I want to take about you know, 20 seconds. Phoebe, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Timothy, the single adult, not extraordinary people, but people that you and I might know. But just right now, can you take about um, 20 seconds? Think of people in your life right now. Think of people in your life right now who are like the Priscilla and Nicholas, the, uh, the Phoebes and Timothys in your life. Can you take a, about 20 seconds to think of a few names? I'm not sure the, the names that you came up with, but when Paul goes through these names of 33 people, what we find is that their identities are not homogenous, but different. It's not like heroes were born out of the same mold, but they come from all shapes and sizes, ethnicity, genders, uh, and marital statuses, socioeconomic statuses. Let me give you an example. Timothy was a single adult who served so selflessly because he's giving to others. And some in this room may say, well, he's a single adult. He doesn't have a life. Of course he can do that. 
Well, Priscilla and Aquila were married. Most likely they had kids. And instead of um, saying, you know, I, I can only be concerned about my family, what they did was they opened up their homes and saying, come into our home and let's share together. Verse 10 and verse 11 mentions the family of Aristobulus and the family of Narcissus. Some were single, some were married, some had children, others not. Some had an aging parent that they were taking care of. Heroes are not born out of the same mold. Think of um, verse 22. It says here um, that the person who's transcribing this letter, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, Now, let me explain what's going on, okay? Paul didn't physically write the book of Romans. But he was dictating it, and the person who was uh, writing it down was his brother by the name of Tertius. So when when someone asks you who wrote the book of Romans, well, uh, it was Paul who spoke it, but the person who was physically writing was another person, Tertius. But uh, Paul didn't dictate every verse of the book of Romans. He, did, he, he dictated everything except one verse, verse 22. And it was Tertius. So Paul was saying, say this, say this, and he was writing it all. And, and Tertius, you want to say hello? Okay. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. What is interesting about Tertius is this. Tertius, uh, the name literally means third, third. Okay, what this tells us is that um, that his status in society was different. You see, uh, people gave names to their biological or adopted children, but when they had slaves, they simply gave them numbers. Your slave number one, your slave number two, your slave number three, Tertius. His name literally meant third. You're the third slave of my household. He was an educated slave. And so when Tertius writes, and he's in the church of Corinth, he's writing from this position of a slave. Another name that is mentioned in the next verse is Quartus. And and that is a number two. That means fourth, who's a brother. So it's a, a third slave and the fourth slave. And sandwiched in between those two slave names... Um, is Gaius, who is said to have offered his hospitality to Paul and to the whole church. It was someone of means who had a home who could open it up for Paul as well as the whole church. Not only that, uh, there is Erastus, the city treasurer, a high-ranking official within that church in uh, Corinth. Superheroes in the church were not simply those who were of a certain status. You can be a slave and you can be busy and one of wealth and they were all superheroes in some ways. Not only that, uh, and the question that, that we should ask is what was it that they did that caused Paul to remark about them? Why is it that he wrote 15 chapters of high theology and he would spend a chapter talking mundanely about individuals. Did they do something extraordinary? 
Now, let me uh, tell you what some of their superpowers were. Phoebe hand-delivers a letter. Uranus, uh, Tryphania, Tryphosa, and Timothy, it says, were workers. Mary and Persis worked hard. Prisca and uh, Aquila opened up their home. The mother of Rufus, her superpower was simply being motherly. Tertius uh, wrote the letter. Did you notice something? That in vast majority of the things that Paul commends, as he's writing about these people saying, I commend you, I want you to connect with them, the vast amount of things that he mentions are not superpowers necessarily, are not things that take extraordinary giftedness or talents, but they're ordinary things that ordinary people can do. But the reason why Paul thought it necessary to remark about them is because, listen carefully, it is sometimes easier for Christians to do uh, the big things, to go on missions, short-term missions or something like that, to serve on leadership, to give a testimony, to lead music, because although those things make us nervous, there's a sense of adrenaline, adoration, and a sense of accomplishment by doing the big things in the church. What is more difficult, I believe, is doing the mundane things, the ordinary things that people don't notice. What is hard oftentimes is to come early in the morning and set up the patio so that people can come afterwards in fellowship, is to come make coffee and cut up donuts. It is hard uh, on a cold day or a hot day to wear yellow vests and direct traffic outside to uh, hold babies in your arms, babies that are not yours, and you've, you're done raising babies, but you go in there holding other people's babies so the moms can worship, and you change babies' diapers. It is when you open up your home to strangers, and you're looking at your Evite and wondering, who is this family? How did they get, get placed in my group? I don't know them. What if their kids are bratty? But you open up your home. I think that's harder. It's harder because there's no applause. People don't post about you. People don't oftentimes don't thank you. And they're the things, the ordinary things that are necessary day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. We, most of us can do the ordinary things for a short uh, sprint, but not for long periods of time. It gets hard. And the reason why I believe Paul is remarking on these people for their ordinary things is because really those are the more remarkable things. And why is it that these people were able to do so? They were able to exercise these ordinary superpowers, remarkable superpowers. Now, uh, why would people... Uh, sacrifice their time, resources, family, recreation, money. Why do they do it? Uh, is it because they had a certain innate personality? They had a passion that they really enjoyed doing those types of things? Or was it some sort of an altruistic selfishness? And, you know, some of it might be involved. 
you know, after all, a lot of times when we do ministry or when we help people serve other people, we do it because we like it. But I don't think that answers all of the questions as to why people do what they do in terms of these services, these ordinary ministries. When Paul talks about all of these people and what they do, there's a common thread, and it's found in the, and if you have to, you have to look carefully, and it's found in the prepositions, prepositions, okay? Let me give you some examples. Verse, uh, Rufus was chosen in the Lord. Uh, Epenitus was a convert to Christ. And Dronicus uh, and Junia were in Christ. Ampilitus was my beloved in the Lord. Apelles was approved in Christ. Perseus worked hard in the Lord. Prisca, Aquila, Urbanus, Tripania, uh, Trifosa were workers in Christ. What weaved throughout all of their lives and what was their motivation? Their preposition was in Christ, for Christ, to Christ. Right? Do you get that? You see, when we're trying to do ministry, listen carefully, um, for others, like, you know, I'm going to serve these people for their sake because they're lovable. These babies are so cute. These people, I have so much, such, such compassion for them. My, my heart burns for the, the, the college students or the young adults or, or what. When we do ministry because we love people, listen carefully. Even if you have a love, loving personality, listen carefully. The people that you're ministering to, they'll fail you at times. They'll hurt you. They'll betray you. It's a part of brokenness. If we're doing ministry on, because we love the people, uh, if we're helping people because we care for them, if that's our motivation, that will eventually fail. Uh, one of the godliest, gentlest, most loving missionaries I've ever known in my lifetime. I was talking to this person, and he spent a couple of decades on the mission field, and a, yeah, and we were talking honestly, and he said, you know, and he confessed something to me. He said, people think that um, I do the mission work because I love the people there. And Steve, to be honest with you, there are times when they're not so lovable. And I can't be driven by that. And I was kind of stunned to hear that. I, you're a missionary. We support you. Oh, my gosh. Right? You don't love the people? It's hard. Right? If we're, if we're serving people and the reason we're serving them is because they're so lovable, there'll come a time when they're not so lovable. If we're serving people because we feel fulfilled, we like doing those things, listen carefully, this is also what happens. If we serve people or we help people because it fulfills me, then you know what, why we're doing what we're doing? We're leveraging those people for our own gratification. Does that make sense? Here, give me a baby because I like babies. We're leveraging the baby for my gratification. And what happens is, even I, I, I don't know if you've ever been uh, the recipient of this, but they're serving you, but you feel weird because you realize they're doing it and it's making them feel good rather than meeting your needs. And so if our motivation is 
the lovability of the people that will fail. If, if our motivation is your fulfillment, what we'll do is we'll use people for our fulfillment. But for these superheroes, these ordinary superheroes, the preposition is in Christ. With Christ, for Christ, to Christ. We're driven not by a love of people, nor by our, our, our drivenness in, in our own hearts, but because Christ has chosen me when I was a sinner, he saved me and I'm in Christ when I don't deserve it, he died on that cross for my sake. Uh, that, that I am doing all that I'm doing with Christ when I'm serving, when I'm working. I'm doing it not on my own, but with Christ. He's my motivation. In Christ alone, I place my trust and I find my glory in the power of the cross. In every victory, let it be said of me, my source of strength, my source of hope in Christ alone alone. Let me now introduce you a second category of people, and we're not going to go as long, but it is those people whom we should avoid or antagonists in the faith. Now, the scripture teaches us to love one another, to bear with them, to pray for them, to help them, to encourage them, to be kind to them, etc. So, you know, look around, you're supposed to love these people around you. The scripture also tells us to uh, love those outside the church even. Love your neighbors as yourself. The scripture even goes as far as to say love your enemies. Okay? So we kind of think that the scripture teaches us Christians to love everyone, to embrace them, to, uh, to connect with them, to support them, etc. But in this passage, uh, when Paul is saying after high theology, it's, we're ultimately in the people business. So connect with all of these 33 types of people, the superheroes, the ordinary people. He says something interesting, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have taught. And here's the second imperative, watch out for them and to avoid them. Fascinating. Paul writes to this strategic church in Rome to mark out and avoid, ignore a certain category of people. He says in verse 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Love one another, love your neighbor, love your enemy, but avoid this group of people. Fascinating. And the reason is because of the impact this group of people are having. And, and I want to make it clear that these people are not outside the church people. They're people within the church. It says in verse 17, watch out for those, he doesn't name them, those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Their impact is that they cause division in the church and they create obstacles or uh, the New Living Translation would say they upset people's faith in the church. There are people in the church, there are those, Paul says, we gotta watch out for them because what they do 
is that they create divisions in the church. They have this knack of pitting people within the church, us against them. And while they do so, they create a stumbling block for people within the church. I, I, you know, I, um, I don't know if you've had experiences, and, and sometimes we do it too. And it, it comes off in holy, um, perhaps biblical language. It's like, hey, um, we need to hold firm to our doctrines, our faith, gospel-centered, etc., we need, I, I don't know if we would endorse that church or that leader. I don't know if we can support them, etc. And the and, and what we're kind of implying is we're better than them. I'm glad you're on our side, type of a thing. And we create this idea um, and this feeling that we're arrogant, we're better, and those people are not. And you create division and a stumbling block. Listen carefully. When Paul talks about this category of people, he doesn't uh, say that they have wrong theology or wrong ecclesiology, meaning how to do church, right? They may even have correct theology and correct ecclesiology. But the impact that they are having is division and stumbling. And in fact, I think what happens within the church and, and as a pastor, and I, I just know a lot of church and a lot of leaders, that sometimes what Christian leaders do is we weaponize correct theology. We take good theology, truth, and we weaponize it, and we end up just destroying, demeaning, deteriorating the church overall. And so sometimes an individual leader, a church, or a tribe is lifted up at the expense of the broader church, saying be careful for them. And what is especially dangerous is their powers. This is how they do it, okay? Now, we may think that those of them, the antagonists, are blatant antagonists. They are waving their sword against their church, trying to destroy it. And that when we meet an antagonist, it would be evident, oh, they're, they're divisive people. But this is their power, okay? Now, if the, the power of the superheroes are really mundane, the powers of the antagonists, antagonists are really deceptive. This is their power. Verse, um, where, where am I? Verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by, this is their power, smooth talk, and flattery, this is their superpower. They deceive the hearts of the naive. How do these people do what they do? They don't make you feel condemned. They don't make you feel bad about yourself. But rather, it is the opposite. By their smooth talk and by flattery, they win you over. The definition of flattery is excessive or insincere pra uh, praise. And they, and they have a good talk. And you're convinced, oh, they, they, they make me feel so good about them. And I want to support their ideas and their cause and their tribe. Uh, as they post pictures about you and go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm accepted, I'm part of them. And he says, that's, 
a tactic that they're using. And their motivation, though. Their motivation, and I, and I, but I, I, I want to be careful. I mean, when people say nice things, that doesn't mean it's bad, of course, right? Uh, but the reason why these people are so dangerous, he's saying, is because their motivation is not the same preposition that we used before. It's not in Christ. But rather, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Did you see it? Their preposition is not in Christ, for Christ, to Christ, with Christ, but it's in me, for me, with me, to me. They're driven by a selfish desire, a, a, a way to, to lift themselves up. You know, there are times when the church needs to stand for truth and even cause division. The, um, Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation was a time when he needed to divide the church. But vast majority of times, vast majority of times, the church is divided, there are fights, there are gossips, churches are destroyed, not for truth, but out of people's personal appetites. When someone feels like they were disrespected, when they feel like their opinions were ignored, when they didn't get nominated into a certain office, when they feel like they were offended carelessly. And so fights, divisions, gossips, and deteriorations occur. And God does not tell us to avoid a lot of people, but this one category of people, he says, you got to be careful. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time, and I want to ask you a question. When I asked you earlier, think of a few people who kind of exemplify the superheroes, the ordinary superheroes, not the ones with high gifts, but just faithfully do the simple things, week after week, month after month, year after year. I, you know, you thought of a few people, and they're driven not by a sense of self or even a love for people, but they're driven by Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. People around you, people around you, when I ask them, if someone were to ask them, think of someone who is this ordinary superhero, would they think of you? Would they say, yeah, Steve, he, he's, he's that kind of a ordinary superhero. That even when no one posts about him, thanks him, is applauding him, even though there are times when uh, people become unpleasant and he doesn't feel fulfilled, he continues to help and serve and love because he was loved on, he was found by, he is uh, uh, serving alongside of Jesus Christ because Christ is your motivation, your heart, and he changed you and you just know that.